Welcome to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast, a community of love, acceptance, forgiveness, and belonging. For more information, be sure to check us out online at shorelinecc.com. We're continuing in our series, The Made for More series, which is going to be an awesome way for us to remember each week of this series that you were created for more. We already said it earlier today, you've been made for so much more than just to feel like you're barely making it through week by week, day by day. Jesus promised us in John 10.10 that he has come to give us life, and that is an abundant, satisfying, rich, fulfilling life that is centered and found in Jesus Christ. We can't search for it in any other way, and we're not going to find satisfaction in anything else other than something that is rooted and grounded on this firm foundation and the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to necessarily have difficult times in our lives. What it does promise us is that God will give us the strength that we need, the capacity that we need to not only survive it, but to thrive in the midst of it, to grow our faith, to grow our perseverance. And so it's because of that that we're looking at this series of how we're made for more, made to serve others, made to be a distinctive influence for Christ in our world, made for community, made to surrender our lives for Christ. That's what it looks like when we enjoy the rich, satisfying life of Jesus. But here's the deal. The abundant life that Jesus comes to bring to each of us is built upon the foundation of belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That's where it begins. That's where it begins. And John writes in the Gospel of John, this is his whole purpose for writing his Gospel, to say, this is my eyewitness account of the things that happened. And he writes it for this purpose. John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He's like, I can tell you about a lot of things that happened, but I can't tell you all of them, because there were a lot of things that happened. But read this with me. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the same life that's promised in John 10.10, that abundant life, that abundant life, life to the full. John's purpose in writing this book was, one, so that the reader or the hearer would have a basis or a confidence for building their faith upon, that you could have confidence in the things that are true about Jesus as the Son of God. He said, that's why I wrote this, so that you could believe. But he didn't stop there. He said, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We talked about this last week. 69% of Americans think that they are Christians. They claim to be Christians. But what does it mean to move beyond just the words we profess, the identity that we want to culturally identify with, and actually allow our lives to be radically, completely transformed by the presence of God in our lives. He wants us to believe, not just agreement, but alignment, surrender, change, this full acceptance of the implications and the cost that's associated with that decision so that you can take hold of this life. The only way you take hold of that life is by laying down your life and surrendering to Jesus And that's how you experience that. And once you experience that kind of life from Jesus, it will lead you closer into community with those who identify with the life of Jesus. Community, the essence of community is we have these things in common. That is the basis of that word, commonality. Koinonia is the Greek word. It's this intense relationship, this reciprocal relationship that we have one another on the basis of something we have in common. 
When our community is based on the life of Jesus, that life will lead us into deeper and deeper community. Same John from John's Gospel wrote a couple of letters toward the end of his life, three letters. And in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And if you know and we'll want to go back and read through the Gospel of John, you'll know John chapter 1, first chapters of each one, 1 John 1, John 1, have language that mirrors itself. This word of life, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's talking about Jesus. We have been eyewitnesses. We've heard it. We've seen it. We can testify that Jesus is real. This life appeared, and we have seen it and testify, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Notice verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that, so that, there's a reason, and he's telling you why, so that you can have fellowship with us. What a great word, fellowship. Now, if I'm talking about so we can have fellowship together, it might feel a little archaic, but we love it when we say, I belong to this fellowship. You know, like I, I received a teaching fellowship. That means that I have been accepted into this greater community. You know, or for your Tolkien fans, you know, the fellowship of the whole thing. Yeah, so, <laughs> so that you can have fellowship with us. And our fellowship, notice that collective language, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. The life appeared, Jesus. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. That life, Jesus showed up in their everyday lives, and it so transformed them. It changed their lives in such a way because they had experienced the life of Jesus that they wanted others to know about Jesus, and they wanted to invite them into that fellowship, that place of belonging, that community, so that together they can experience fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Fellowship is a relational word. Community is a relational word. It's a deep reciprocal friendship, a sense of participation or belonging. We all long for that. We all want to find those places where we belong. We want to find significance in the relationships and the things that we do and the purpose that we set our lives toward. But our commonality is centered around Jesus. We have fellowship together. We belong. We become community. But 1 John chapter 1 says our fellowship is with God and his son Jesus Christ. Our deepest sense of longing the deepest sense of belonging you can have can only be found in Jesus. Your deepest relational needs will be met by surrendering to Jesus. Your deepest relational needs will be met in community with other people who are following after Jesus. Now, this word can be overused. We can use this for a lot of things. Man, I went to that game, and boy, experience just great community. You know, or I really love going to this school because it's such great community. But it's almost an overused word in our vernacular. Wouldn't you agree? It's just like a community, community, community. But what does it look like to have community? Do you know what it takes to build community or commonality? Robin Dunbar, who is a professor of psychology at Oxford University, identifies categories of relationships. And Dunbar says there are five types of categories of relationships that we can all enjoy. And he says there are acquaintances, casual friends, friends, good friends, and then intimate friends. So acquaintances, to casual friends, to friends, to good friends, to intimate friends. And Dunbar put numbers to the relationships, and he said, you can only maintain about 150 of these relationships at a time. 
So from the casual acquaintance, the person that you meet and encounter, you know, in the school or the workplace or, you know, at the store, those casual acquaintances all the way to the most intimate of friends. And out of those 150, about 50 will become friends, not even good friends or intimate friends, but friends, about 50, and only about five really truly intimate friends, the ones who know your business, who know everything about you, love you despite of it, you can handle about five of those intimate friendships. But he doesn't stop there. He said, if you want to deepen these relationships, Psychology Today has this article about him, and it says Dunbar found that it took about 50 hours of interaction to move from acquaintance to casual friend, and about 90 hours to move from casual friend to friend, and more than 200 hours, 200 quality hours of time together to move um, toward a best friend status. So that's a lot of time together. So what does it take to deepen relationships and build community? Well, first of all, you've got to have a common purpose. In our case, it's centered around Jesus. We have that commonality. But beyond that, it's going to take an investment. you just got to log the time. you got to put in the work. You've got, to, you've got to put in the hours that it takes to build those relationships and build community, that time and effort. Shoreline Community Church, we have that word in our, in our name. And in fact, some of you may have been drawn toward Shoreline Community Church because it had that nice little word in the middle of it. Will you find community here? I think you have every opportunity to find an amazing community. I found wonderful community here at Shoreline Community Church. Will you find it here? Depends on you, right? It depends on each of us putting in that effort. And just for fun, I took Dunbar's numbers and I said, what would it look like if I attended church and just put in an extra 10 minutes like every week? So if I came 52 weeks a year, now most of us are not here 52 weeks a year, but if you did and you put in that extra effort to not just come in and slide in just as the service is starting and then just exit as soon as it was done, but you actually said, you know what, I'd like to try to get acquainted with people. How much time is it going to take you to do that? If you put in 10 extra minutes a week, 520 minutes in a year, it's going to take you to move from acquaintance to casual friend, that 50 hours, 5.8 years. It's going to take you a while. To move from casual friend to friend, that 90 hours, it's going to take you 10.4 years. From friend to intimate friend, 200 hours, taking 10 minutes a week, 23.1 years. Now, the good thing is you can fast track that. <laughs> When we ask you and encourage you to be a part of groups, we encourage you to, you know, go to the women's retreat, as a little shameless plug for that. Uh, when we encourage you to get involved, to pray together, to, to fellowship together, to be with one another, to build friendships, to go to lunch together, to do that, it's more than us just trying to say, let's make sure that we have numbers, you know, every week. How many people attended church this week? You know what, that's, that's part of the equation, but that's just a tiny part of the equation. What's important is that you're building relationships with each other based on our common relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the thing that builds us and draws us into community. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we read this a lot. The fellowship of the believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All believers were together and had everything in common. Koinos, same word, like we get the root word from koinonia, fellowship. They had it in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need every day. Every day they invested in these relationships. 
with God and with each other. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Well, no wonder. What a way to live. What a way to live. What a community to be a part of, a vibrant, rich, dedicated, invested community. Life leads to relationship with God. Life in Jesus leads to relationship with God, but also with others, that true community. If you want to build relationships with others, you're going to have to spend time with them. If you want a relationship with Jesus, you're going to have to spend time with them. There's no shortcut to that. But what's the challenge to community? Here's a challenge to community. We're looking for this kind of life in all the wrong places. Now, when I was in first grade, my dear little music teacher had us singing a very terrible country song called Looking for Love, you know, all that terrible song for a six-year-old to be singing. But in many senses, that's kind of what we do, too. We're looking for life in all the wrong places. And everything that comes along with the satisfying life that Jesus offers, we try to look for some kind of substitute in many things. But we all have this search for significance. We are all looking for a place to find meaning because we want our lives to count. We want to make a difference. We want to do good in the world. We want to have a good life. We look for opportunities, ways to fulfill our potential, recognition. We look for meaningful work. We want, we want our vocations and the way that we spend a, a good majority of our time to be invested well and to have those opportunities. Uh, some of us curate the kind of life we want, the relationships we dial in and out, the, the Pinterest-worthy closet or house that we have, an Instagram, you know, beautiful life. We, we try to create this because there's something in us that longs for that. And I want you to hear me clearly. There is nothing inherently wrong in that desire. We were created to reflect the image and the beauty and the radiance of God. We're created to enjoy the gifts that he gives. But 1 Timothy 6 is very clear. Command those who are rich in this present world. Very strong language. Command them. There's a warning that we have to, that we have to pay attention to who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in their wealth, which is so uncertain. I think we all feel that right now in, in some very practical ways. It's so uncertain, but put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. How much is everything? Everything. God gives us all things for our enjoyment, but it doesn't stop there. Paul continues to write, command them, warning, do good, be rich in good deeds, be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation. That contrast between the things that are so uncertain when we look to things that, that our wealth can buy, the things that we can dial in or dial out and that we think we're in control of. We're not in control of it. That's uncertain. But he says that we can lay hold treasure, lay up treasure for ourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life that abundant, satisfying life that Jesus offers. The only way you do that is by doing these other things and recognizing the source and the foundation, the supports for that. If you want to lay hold of the life that is truly life, then you've got to lay up those treasures in heaven. You've got to look to Jesus as the source for those things. If we look for a satisfying, abundant life in anyone or anything other than Jesus and in following after him, you're going to be dissatisfied. That's the truth. If we anchor our identity in anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ, it's going to fall short. It's going to disappoint you. 
If you settle for the pleasure of a good life today without thinking about your eternity and how you're living and how you're investing, the relationships and how you're affecting them, how you're leading them, closer or further away from Jesus, how are you investing? If you settle for anything less than the hope that is found in the foundation of Jesus, you're going to settle for only a passing pleasure. You're going to enjoy it kind of, but you're not going to enjoy it for eternity. It's like enjoying an, a, an apple or a piece of fruit that's not quite ripe. It's like all the promise is there, but if you pick it too soon, you say, I want to enjoy it today rather than giving it a few more days, you miss that juicy apple. You know, that, that oh, apples are so good. Peaches, anything like that, whatever your favorite fruit is, just fill in the gaps. You don't want to settle for an unripe version of what is actually intended because you don't enjoy the full potential of what is offered to you. That's what Jesus says. I come to give you life. I offer it to you, but you have to choose it. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees two brothers. They're fishing, and he calls out to them. He's like, yeah, I see what you're doing. You're fishing over there, but how about if you want to fish for men? Do you want to come join me in my mission? It says, at once they left their nets, and they followed him. When Jesus said, follow me, these disciples must have thought, here's my opportunity. Here's my big chance. He sees me. He wants me on his team. Because at once they took action. They didn't wait for anything to happen. They followed because they already knew from their training in the synagogues that what it would take to be a disciple. They recognized an opportunity when opportunity was given. And to be a disciple meant they would have to pattern their lives completely in the image of their teacher or their rabbi. In this case, when Jesus invited them, they knew that that meant they were going to have to leave everything behind and go and just be with him. Learn his ways. Watch him in different situations. Watch him interact with people. Listen to him. Learn from him. Ask questions. Ask questions. Ask questions. Ask lots of questions. Jesus can handle them. Ask questions. Discover. Investigate. You're on a firm foundation. It can hold. They followed Jesus, and for three years, they listened to him teach. When they heard his sermon on the mount, when he was saying, you've heard it was said, but I say. He concludes that sermon, and in verse 28 and 29 of Matthew 7, it says, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Jesus was not just a teacher. He was the son of God. And when he taught, the words that came out of his mouth had authority. And because of that, people's lives began to change because of that authority. They recognized that. Three years they spend with Jesus. Three years traveling together in community with other disciples who were following Jesus, who had forsaken everything to follow Jesus. They might have had an idea of what that might lead to, but it surely didn't look like what actually happened, at least not initially. They likely assumed that that meant greater opportunities, maybe a higher standing among their peers. But Jesus had an eternal perspective on what that satisfying, abundant life would look like, and he plainly told them it was going to cost him not only his life, but also theirs too. When he told him that, Peter couldn't accept it. And he said, never, Lord. Never, Lord. Surely you don't mean that. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because you are a stumbling block. You only have in mind the concerns. I have in, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Read this with me. Read what Jesus said to his disciples after that. You don't have concerns of the mind of God. You only have 
human concerns. And then he said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So here's the question today. What's the trade-off for your soul? What's the trade-off for your soul? What's the compromise? What's the payout? What's the trade-off for your soul? Jesus said that he would die and be raised from on the third day, and that's exactly what happened. Peter recognized and confessed that Jesus was the Son of God, and Jesus said, hey, upon your confession of faith, I'm going to build a great and mighty church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And yet Jesus also told Peter, you're going to deny me three times when that faith is tested. And that's exactly what happened. Peter denies Jesus in that moment when his belief, when the words that he professed were put to the test, just like we all face. And the disciples had a crisis of belief that led to a crisis of community. This had implications in their community. It scattered them. When crisis hits, what happens to each of us? What happens to our community when crisis hits? We've all been put to the test in various ways. What happens to this abundant life that Jesus offers? And I'd like for you to notice a cycle of three Ds. That's not Dwayne, Dwayne, Dwayne. This is something else. Three Ds. Disillusionment, disengagement, and distraction. And notice the cycle, because I think you're going to see that it shows up in all of our lives. It certainly shows up in my life when I'm put to the test and when things are just, oh, it's a little bit hard right now. Disillusionment. We begin to mistrust God and others. When things aren't exactly what I thought they were going to be, I have an illusion of what should be. I have an idea, an ideal And it doesn't quite work out like that. What happens? Disillusionment comes knocking at the door. And what is disillusionment? That's the loss of illusion. That's reality. When reality hits, we lose illusion and accept reality. But it can lead us and tempt us to mistrust God and others. Basileia Schlink writes, Mistrust means that we have a false picture of God in our hearts. We attribute evil intentions to God because they are in our own hearts. Behind every mistrustful thought, even towards other people, there is something serious, namely an unspoken accusation. We think the other person does not have our best interest in mind, and he does not want us to have anything good. This poison of mistrust spoils the relationship of trust to our Heavenly Father, but also to our neighbor. For if we mistrust the love and wisdom of God, we will unintentionally come into the same mistrustful, prejudiced attitude towards our fellow men and will become guilty towards them. This guilt, however, will accuse us before the judgment seat of God if it is not brought into the light, repented of, and forgiven through the blood of Jesus. That disillusionment, the loss of illusions. When we become disillusioned, there's a temptation then toward disengagement. We walk away. We bail, we isolate, we say, you know what, I'm just going to take care of me, and that individualism starts to take, take root, not only in our hearts, but also in our communities. 
what's going to be best for me, what is my priority, what, what feels good, what makes sense to me right now. Disengagement. In the book Disappearing Church that we've referenced a few times, Mark Sayers writes, there was a desire for community, yet this desire was held alongside an even greater desire for individual autonomy. He's talking about the culture that we live in and what's happening. The West had entered a truly post-institutional age in which individuals adopted a social posture, a social posture of disengagement. Social networking and other forms of pseudo-community filled the spaces where embodied community and institutions once existed. Institutions, that word kind of has a negative connotation. Institution, I want to be part of an institution. What's an institution? It's an organization that's founded upon and exists for a common purpose. That's it. That's the definition of an institution. It's a group of people that get together and say, let's do this together for this purpose, and they get organized around it. That's an institution. Plain and simple. Institution is not a bad word. Institution just means we're getting organized around a common purpose. But it's also filled with a group of people who are imperfect. And at all different layers and levels of spiritual growth and maturity, and sometimes our humanness really gets in the way of good relationships. Right? This happens to me. It happens to you. It happens to all of us. Our best intentions are not good enough at times because we just have a whole lot of dirt mixed in with our humanity, right? A lot of humanness and frailty in that. But at its best, it can be one of the best gifts for each of us to combat the narcissism and the isolationism and the individualism that each of us are tempted toward. Culturally, we are swimming upstream in this area of isolation and individualism. Like, our, like a salmon, we have to fight our way against this current, and it's going to take a lot of time and effort and energy to push against that and stay engaged in relationship when we're hitting those hard times. There's a difference between those virtual experiences, those pseudo-community, the disembodied community that he writes about, to experience an embodied. That just means an in-flesh, in-person kind of experience. It's easier to put up a wall or to hide or to listen to a preacher across the country or around the world or whatever and say, you know what, I've found great community. No, you haven't. You found great teaching. That's awesome. But if you want to experience community, that means you're going to experience the one another's. I tell you what, if Paul, who wrote about all these one another's, he said, love one another, be kind to one another, be tenderhearted to one another, all those one another's. If Paul came into our church today, you know what, he was kind of a thorny guy. I don't know if he would be the first person I'd say, that's my new best friend right there. That's the person I want to get close to. He was a thorny character, you know? He did tremendous work for the sake of the gospel. But there were, there were some thorns and some thistles as it related to Paul. And so when he came into the scene and he starts talking about the, the good one another's that we like, he also wrote about some realities, some hard one another's, bear with one another. That means there's some friction. I have to put up with you and you have to put up with me. There's friction involved in that relationship. Be patient with one another. Forgive one another over and over. How many times, Lord? 70 times 7. Just keep forgiving, keep forgiving, keep forgiving, keep forgiving. That's the grace and the mercy that comes from Jesus Christ alone. Only when Jesus enters your life can you forgive the way that he forgives you. That free gift of God without any qualification, without any good works required on your behalf. The assurance of salvation that comes in the name of Jesus Christ. Nobody else offers that kind of assurance 
that kind of confidence in knowing that Jesus is for you. And because he's for you, because he gave his life for you, you can forgive because he did it. He did it. He laid it down. If we don't deal with this and we walk away from relationships, it'll only drive us toward greater isolation, individualism, and indifference. And then we seek distraction. Distraction. We will simply fill all those relational, community-spaced voids with other self-interest, pursuits for pleasure, search for significance, new people, and essentially we reset the clock on community. And you're going to have to log those hours all again. (laughs) That's what happens. Can you see the vicious cycle? Can you see the vicious cycle that we're in? We'll never find the satisfaction we seek if we avoid community, a community that's based on our shared commitment and commonality to surrender to Jesus in every area of our life. That purpose-filled community can shape us and is a gift to you and to me. The monastic Benedictines take three vows when they decide to join that community. They take a vow of obedience. That means that they're willing to submit. They take a vow of fidelity to the monastic way. Literally, that the, the, it's called conversatio morum. It's a conversion. It's a commitment to change. I commit to change. I commit to change. I commit to convert. I'm going to change my identity and identify with the way of Christ. And they take a vow of stability. That's a vow to the community life. They say, I will be a part of this community for the rest of my life. Are there challenges to that community? Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes we focus so much on what it means to leave a community and the pain that comes when we have to separate from those we love. But I'll tell you, because I've lived it and I know you have too, there is a pain that comes from staying. There is a pain that comes when you decide that you're going to commit to a place and you're going to commit to a group of imperfect people. There's a pain that comes from staying. But that's why community is so important to our spiritual growth. Community creates those friction points which require us to choose whether or not we are going to press in or bail and walk away. Do you know this to be true? If you do, say an amen, right? Will you find community here at SCC? Are you going to find those kinds of relationships that lead you closer to Jesus? The opportunity is there, but you're going to see plenty of exit signs along the way. They're going to come one right after the next, right after the next, because we are on this highway. You're going to see plenty of exit signs along the way. But staying in relationships and those organizations, those institutions that are founded upon and built upon a common purpose, that are built on a firm foundation, protect us from ourselves. Mark Sayers continues, he said, we're placed in a context in a community, an institution, and webs of responsibility. Is it going to cost you something? Yes. Paul reminds us that this is good. The script of our culture tells us that we can only find self-fulfillment when we break away from these limitations. But Paul is reversing that false view of life. Limitations and the defined space of living and ministering that God gives us within the institution of the church is a gift. God places us in institutions, relationships, responsibilities to teach us and to shape us into Christ-likeness. The way toward abundant life is found in surrender to Jesus and in laying down our lives as Jesus did for us 
for the sake of others. For the sake of others. We first receive and accept the love of Jesus. And we call and say, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I ask you to forgive me. Then that very moment, he moves in and takes residence in your heart, and he will begin to change your life. How many of you can testify that that is true? Jesus will change your life when you invite him in. He forgives us, and then we commit to community with each other. We invest, we grow, we change, we do things together, we pray together, we spend time together, we follow Jesus together. Then we forgive each other when those hard times hit, because they will. There will be offenses, and opportunities abound for offense in community. But we begin, and we begin again, and we begin again, and we forgive again, and they forgive us, and, and we pick up and we move on. We remain steadfast. We give it time. We surrender to that pain of staying in community. And it's in that way that we learn to love each other sacrificially as Jesus first loved us. As Jesus first loved us. So to experience true community, we all have to recognize that we are made for surrender. You're made for a relationship with Jesus. If you want the abundant life that he offers... If you want to experience the community that comes from being in the shared commitment and purpose of following after Jesus together, you will need to surrender your life. The cost is plain. Satisfaction is found in surrender, but your soul is never going to be truly satisfied until you surrender to Jesus, not anything else. There's not anything else you can place your hope in. This is the true source of real life. The words of Jesus in John 3, 16 through 18, for God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish, but you will have eternal life. Do you want an assurance of your salvation? Root yourself in Jesus. It's the only firm foundation you're going to have. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. There's that assurance. You are not condemned. He said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus will set you free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation in Jesus. For whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And Jesus before his death, John 15, says, I've told you these things. He said, I've been as plain as I can be with you hours before his death. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. You are Jesus's friends. We experience friendship with him and with each other when we do what he commands. This is the way forward. His love for each of us cost Jesus his life, and he says it's going to cost you too. And that's why Dwayne and I talk about that a lot, the, this word discipleship, the other D word, right? Discipleship, discipleship, discipleship. Because to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, means you're going to have to give up everything. You have to be willing to give in exchange for your life. You take on the life of Christ. He offers you everything in return. But you have a choice to make. We have a choice to make. He says it's going to cost you. We have to pattern our lives completely after the one we follow. And to follow Jesus means that you will follow him in humility and in surrender. You will lay down your life 
you will, in humility, serve God and serve your fellow man. You will die to self. You'll die to self-interest. You will live for others. Back to Peter. When the disciples had this crisis of community, they were scattered. They were disillusioned. They had to figure out what next. You know, they were, the rug had just been completely pulled out from under everything that they thought was going to happen. And it's in that place, when they're back to fishing, that Jesus shows up on the shoreline of their lives and says, I'll bless what you're doing. And I extend the invitation for you to come follow me again. And it says in John chapter 21 that they were sharing a breakfast on the shoreline when Jesus asks Peter three questions each time, three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And each one of those times, Peter proclaims his love and devotion to Jesus. Three times, Jesus says that command, feed and take care of my sheep. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. Yes, God, I love you. Feed my lambs. Yes, I love you. Take care of my sheep. The opportunity was there to get back onto the mission that they had originally been called to. And after Peter hears this three, three times in verse 17 of John 21, it tells us that he was hurt by this question. He was hurt. He gave the right response, the words, the words that would express belief. Yes, God, I love you. I love you. I love you. He said all the right things, but Jesus knows that Peter's response is not going to show up just in his words, but in his actions, and it was going to cost him his life. Not just Jesus, Peter, Peter's life. You're going to lay down your life if you really believe this is true. And he tells him plainly in verse 19, he said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then Jesus says to Peter, follow me. You're going to die. Follow me. You have a choice to make. Ball's in your court. Jesus asked Peter to feed his sheep, and he said, you know how to fish, but I'm asking you to change your vocation. I'm asking you to become a shepherd. And Jesus had taught about what it meant to be a good shepherd. In John 10, chapter 10, where he talks about the abundant life, he also said, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And you know what a good shepherd looks like? The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And he said, no one takes it from me, but I give it willingly. He said, that's what it means to be a shepherd. Peter knew those words. He knew the teaching of Jesus as it related to be a shepherd. He knew exactly what he was reinforcing in that moment. But this is love. This is what love looks like. Jesus submitted himself to the will of his father in laying down his life, and now Peter has a choice as his disciple. Will I identify with the life of the rabbi that I've devoted the last three years to following? Will I follow him there? Am I willing to follow him there? He's conflicted, just like we are when we hear the invitation of Jesus and then have choices to make about how closely we will move into relationship with Jesus and how much we will follow when we move from professing belief in Jesus to actually surrendering our lives and living like Jesus. And Peter turns and he sees the disciple that Jesus loved following him, which incidentally is John, the one who's writing the letter, this one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, is it going to, who's going to betray you? This is John. And Peter looks back at John and he says, what about him? What about him? Is he going to have to die too? And Jesus answers in plain. He says, if I want him to, be, to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. 
so easy to get our eyes on what's happening in somebody else's life and forget that Jesus is looking at you. He's looking at me. He's looking at you and saying, you must follow. It doesn't matter what everybody else chooses to do. You must follow Jesus. If you want the abundant life that comes from him, you must make that choice for yourself. And then accept the implications of that. Will you follow Jesus there? And because he said yes, Peter was used by God to build one of the greatest communities, the New Testament church. This church that we are part of is all because Peter said, yeah, I'm willing to accept the implications of that cost. I will build my church. I will build my church. That's why Paul could write, as he also built the church of God. In Galatians 2, verse 20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer Paul who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20. It's Christ who lives in me. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, my everyday life, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What love? What love God has for each of us that he extends this invitation to us to follow him. We were made to find our deepest joy in knowing and in serving Jesus. You and I were made for more. You're made for more. You're made for a relationship with Jesus. You're made for a relationship with others. You're made for a deep community that is built around a shared mission, a shared sense of purpose. You were made to live for things that matter not just in life but for eternity. You were made for surrender. You're made for surrender. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we reflect on just a couple of questions I want to leave you with because each of us has to answer this call in our own hearts. You may or may not be ready to take a public step forward, but today you can take a private step toward Jesus and accept his offer. He offers it freely. He extends his hands open. He was like, anyone who wants, offers the same. You can have eternal life in Jesus Christ. You have to say yes. You have to sit. Take a step toward Jesus today. So how is your relationship with Jesus? You may be comfortable with God or an idea of God, but what is your relationship with Jesus? Have you moved beyond belief in your words toward a complete surrender of your life in every area of your life? Are there things that you're still holding on to that, oh God, not that part. No, not that part, not that relationship not that opportunity, not that life I really wanted to build, not my retirement, like whatever it is that God is laying, the choice is right there before each of us. How is your relationship and is it moving you beyond belief in words toward a complete surrender? What is Jesus asking you to do right now and what is your next step as it relates to your relationship with Jesus? And then the second question is simply, how is your relationship with community? How is your relationship with community? Have there been hurts and offenses that have just started to, to gather and they're just clustering around your heart? Maybe you're disillusioned. Maybe you're, you're disengaging in some way from the relationships that are intended to lead you closer to Jesus. 
Maybe you're trying to distract yourself and fill that void that you were created for and a lot of other good things that you're missing the most important thing. You're missing the one thing. If that is you, what is Jesus saying to you and what are you going to do about it? What is your next step? In Jesus' name, we call forth life in this congregation. In Jesus' name. Lord, we call forth life, your resurrected life, in the hearts of every individual. Lord, whatever ideas we have had about who you are, Lord, we tear them down because we want our lives to be built on truth. We want our lives to be built on something that leads us toward a security in our relationship and knowing that you love us that you've given yourself for us. Lord, I pray that we would freely and willingly accept the gift that you offer to each of us today. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray that your light of truth would penetrate straight to the heart of every man and woman in this place and that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be the day that we call on your name and are saved. In Jesus' name, I would encourage you to just reflect on the state of your own heart. As it relates to Jesus, as it relates to community, and then take a step, whether that's to turn to somebody next to you and say, you know, would you pray with me about this? This has been hard. Or this is where I've been disillusioned. This is whatever those challenges have been. I don't have to name them all. We've just spent a lot of time talking about them. But whatever Jesus is pointing and bringing to your attention, trust that that's the thing he wants you to pay attention to. Whatever the Holy Spirit is lifting to the surface is the thing. And then whether that's going to a prayer wall and writing out a prayer or maybe coming, we have some friends down here at the front who are willing to pray with you or you turn to somebody or maybe you want to come and you want to receive communion as a symbol of your devotion to Jesus that you say, I recognize that your body was broken for me. That's what the bread symbolizes. And that your blood was shed for me. I don't have to pay the penalty for my own sins. I can't. But Jesus did it for me and he offers it as a free gift. That's why we celebrate communion. That's why we remember. We remember and we celebrate the life of Jesus that is in each of us when we surrender to him. Take a step, some step, any step toward Jesus today. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. It is finished. Your relationship is sealed with Jesus the moment you say yes to him. Now, it'll take a lifetime to change. It's going to take a lifetime to move forward in what that means. And today, I would encourage you, if you are a sincere seeker of Jesus, it doesn't matter what your, your past is. It doesn't matter what your religious background is or anything. If you are a sincere seeker of Jesus Christ, his offer is the same to you as it is to any of us who've already said yes. He offers his life in exchange for yours. And all you have to do is say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you with all of my heart. And maybe you're making that privately in your heart. Maybe you're making that decision. And maybe you're ready to take a public step in that 
I would encourage you to talk with one of us, to talk. We'll, we'll be here after the service. We'll be here even throughout the week. You can call us. You can email us. You can do whatever you need to get in touch, and we will talk to you about what that means to follow Jesus. That would be our greatest joy. There are Bibles that are available that will help you start walking through and understanding what that commitment might mean. And then Jesus is going to take your hand and say, walk with me. He's not going to leave you alone in that. He's not going to leave you alone to figure it out. He's going to take you hand by hand. He's going to lead you toward life. And guess what? You get the rest of us. This comes with a package. You get a family. You get a real family. You get people who want you to know and love Jesus. Yes. Behold what love the Father has given to each of us that we should all become sons and daughters of God, that we should be called his. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Jesus, we thank you that life is found in our relationship with you, and we grow in that life because you've given us the gift of each other, and we grow in community. Lord, I pray that we would invest well. Lord, that we would love well, that we would forgive well, that we'd pick up and keep going, Lord, that we would remain steadfast and immovable in our faith in you and our, in our confidence and our growing trust in one another. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to have eyes to see those. As you said, that the fellowship would be with the Father and the Son, but we, we are eyewitnesses. We have experienced the love and grace of Jesus, and so we want others to come into that relationship with you as well. So, Lord, help us to have eyes to see wherever we go this week, to hear your spirit prompting when you invite us to take a step or talk to a neighbor or whatever it is you invite us to do, Lord, to invite others into that life-giving relationship. Lord, help us to be bold. In Jesus' name we pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace.